This is Epicenter, episode 323 with guests Sylvia McCallie and Steve Kokonos. Hi, welcome to Epicenter. My name is Sebastian Couture. Today, our guests are Sylvia McCallie and Steve Kokonos. Respectively, they are the founder and CEO of Algorand. Of course, we had Sylvia on the podcast before. It was almost three years ago in February of 2017. And back then, Algorand was just a white paper. You'll remember that Silvio was a professor at MIT, and he'd written this paper, which described this revolutionary new blockchain consensus mechanism. And I think a lot of people, including myself, we're excited to see this seasoned academic and renowned cryptographer entering the space. I think to many people, it signified a certain level of maturity of the technology and of the ecosystem. After we ended the interview, as we often do, Mayer and I had a debrief. And I remember thinking, this is fascinating, but it doesn't seem like he's going to build this. I actually went back and listened to that conversation from three years ago, and he didn't leave many doors open to the possibility that he would actually work towards building Algorand. Well, sometime after that, Silvio was approached by some colleagues, and they began working with him to transform this idea into a company. Since then, he's left MIT, and Algorand has grown into a company with dozens of employees. Uh, they've raised over $100 million, and they've launched the mainnet network. One of the things which fascinates me about this story is Silvio's seamless transition into entrepreneurship. I mean, McCallie is in his 60s. He spent his entire career in academia. Of course, he and Shafi Goldwasser won the Turing Award in 2012 for co-inventing ZKPs. And just like that, he left academia and he took the leap into the blockchain startup world. And he talks about it with such ease and enthusiasm. And I think this is one of his many qualities. And I think probably most people wouldn't be able to do this at this stage in their career. So, you know, hats off to him for doing that. So in this conversation, we revisited how Algorand works. We talked about the scalability aspects and how Algorand claims to solve the blockchain trilemma. We talked about VRFs and their role in the protocol and also uh, the roles of the different participants in consensus. And Steve Kokonos, the company's CEO, helped us understand their philosophy when it comes to building the product. Their approach to developer experience is somewhat unique, I think, if you compare it to other layer one protocols. The smart contract language, Teal, is a set of about 30 instructions rather than full Turing-complete programming language. And they've chosen to build some DeFi components right into the protocol. So things like asset issuance and atomic swaps are built right in, as opposed to leaving that open for the community to build as layers on top. So I think if you compare Algorand to things like Ethereum, Cosmos, and Polkadot, there are some important distinctions in terms of product philosophy. Before we go to the interview, I'd like to tell you about our wonderful sponsors for today's episode. Societies across the globe need technology that gives them monetary independence, voice, and sovereignty. And this is the mission of the Status Network. It's an organization building tools and blockchain infrastructure at every layer of the tech stack. Status combines a decentralized messenger, wallet, and DAP browser into a powerful private secure communication tool. It uses a peer-to-peer -peer protocol and end-to-end -end encryption to protect your communications from third-party interference. There is no email and no phone number required to set it up, which is one of the things I love about Status. And the peer-to-peer -peer messaging means that your messages are never sitting on a server anywhere. When you send someone a message, it goes from your phone to their phone. 
The crypto wallet allows you to safely send, receive, and store crypto assets. Only you hold the keys. This is a serverless wallet. And the built-in Web3 browser allows you to navigate the growing ecosystem of decentralized applications right from your phone without being tracked. To learn more about the Status Network and all of the components which make up this ecosystem, go to statusnetwork.com and go to status.im to find the beta for iOS and Android. And please join the public channel. It's hashtag epicenter. And if you message me there, we'll send you some free SNT tokens so that you can create your own ENS domain name in Status. We'd like to thank Status for their support of Epicenter. We are also brought to you by Cosmos, the Internet of Blockchains. The Internet Blockchain Communications Protocol, IBC, enables a massive variety of networks to coexist, each with their own features and purpose, communicating with a trustless protocol. Now, Ethereum is obviously a massive part of this interchain, and aspects of its infrastructure will show up in many different places. One of the ways Ethereum shows up in the interchain is with the Ethereum virtual machine. It's a time-tested, secure execution environment that provides properties that make it ideal for smart contracts. So if you're building a network outside of Ethereum and you want to utilize the EVM, one of the ways you can do this is with the Cosmos SDK and the included Ethermint module. Aragon recently decided to run their own network that utilizes this infrastructure in order to make protocol-level decisions for their users. This enables them to modify things like gas cost, uh, increase throughput, and and design their own token economics from the ground up. So if you're interested in learning about building application-specific and interconnected blockchains, and if you're going to East Denver, you should join their workshop. It's on Wednesday, February 12th, during Biddle Week. This session will be a hands-on instructional course that uses the Cosmos SDK to build an NFT blockchain. They'll go over the process of deploying your own EVM blockchain that you can interact with via MetaMask and utilizing all of your favorite Ethereum developer tools. To connect with the Cosmos team and to learn more about how you can join this workshop, go to the Cosmos forum. That's at forum.cosmos.network and you can talk to somebody there who can tell you more about the workshop. We'd like to thank Cosmos for their support of Epicenter. We're also brought to you by Pepo, where the crypto community comes together with short video updates and tokens of appreciation. So whether you're a crypto developer, a podcaster, an analyst, a blogger, or an enthusiast who's just interested in the space, there's never been an easier way to showcase your work, earn appreciation, and connect with the community. So Charlie Schrem is on Pepo, Alex van der Sande of the Ethereum Foundation is on Pepo, Anna George of Gnosis is on Pepo, and Evan Van Ness of This Week in Ethereum is also on Pepo. So you can talk to these people directly and all of the other great uh, content creators that are exclusively creating content on Pepo. What I love about Pepo is that you collect more than just likes. When you like something, when you want to show your appreciation for content, you tip people with Pepo coins. And unlike Twitter, much of the spam is eliminated because you actually have to put up Pepo coins in able to respond to videos. Pepo is fast, it's easy to use, and you'll reimagine what's possible with crypto. I love that with Pepo, you get to see how crypto is applied to a social network that anybody can use. So to download Pepo for iOS or Android, go to pepo.com slash epicenter. That lets them know we sent you, and you can find me there. My username is at seb2.0, that's at seb2point0. 
we'd like to thank Pepo for their support of Epicenter. And with that, here's our interview with Silvio McCallie and Steve Kokinos. I'm here with Steve Kokinos, who is the CEO of Algorand, and Professor Silvio McCallie, who invented Algorand and is leading research at uh, the Algorand company. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having us, Sebastian. Silvio, we had you on the podcast about three years ago. And back then, Algorand was just a white paper and an idea. And I remember after the podcast thinking, I wonder if anything's going to come of this. Like, I wonder if someone will pick up the idea and go out and build it. Because it at the time, you didn't really seem to have any ambition to do anything with this, except just that it was like an interesting research exercise for you. At least that, that was my impression. Tell us, what's that journey been like? Like, what happened from then, which has brought and got you to where you are now, uh, now with the company and tens of people working for you and having raised funds and everything? Somehow, my research interest have always been historical in uh, cryptography and uh, Byzantine agreement, and uh, more recently, mechanism design, economic mechanisms. So somehow, uh, finally, I learned about Bitcoin, and I felt it was a, a fantastic problem, but uh, an inelegant solution. Great idea, first idea, but I thought it could do better. And uh, by the time in which you know we sp- first spoke, um, Sebastian, I felt you know. I just wrote of a white paper. Usually my style is to publish in uh, reviewed uh, conferences, uh, journals, and things like that. But this time, and I really felt, you know, I wanted to put it out there uh, a bit more in the style of the community as um, on an electronic archive and see what uh, feedback I got. But the feedback I got was not electronic. Somebody knocked at the door of my office, and uh, it was my good colleagues uh, in uh, in systems, uh, Nikolai Zeldovich, which is uh, a few floors up in our building. And he says, Silvio, this stuff is too good to be true. Okay, do you mind if we test it? And of course, I said, you know, listen, do I mind? Why should I mind? So we prepared a very rigorous test with uh, involving actually a few other people who became now the core of the algorithm team, on the, on the engineering team. And uh, we rented some, uh, I think, about a thousand uh, big servers from Amazon and tried to simulate the protocol with uh, 5,000 users at first, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, up to 500,000. We wanted to simulate it up to a million, but we needed to find 2,000 servers, and we couldn't find any day in which 2,000 servers were available. But in any case, it was irrelevant at that point because uh, we wanted to test uh, the scalability of the system. And we saw that after 75,000 users, there was no added delay. So the the system, uh, surprise, surprise, scaled as the mathematical analysis suggested. So we thought that uh, we publish uh, the paper with with Nikolai and uh, Yossi and uh, Derek and uh, Yorgos and it uh, was a very proud, it was my first system paper. And at that point, you know, first there was an idea, then there there was actually an experiment and uh, all of a sudden I said, you know, gee, maybe this stuff works, maybe we should uh, form a company and and develop it. Also because I must say, in the past I saw that uh, it was really a long time in which you know, the basic ideas that I was developing um, uh, starting in the 1980 um, on public key cryptography, it took a long time to get into society. 
and I decided we had to accelerate this. And so forming a company was a really a right thing. I happened to share an elevator ride uh, with uh, Jamie of uh, Pillar, who, was, uh, who ended up being uh, one of our uh, investors uh, in uh, Series uh, A. And the other one was um, Albert uh, from uh, Union Square Ventures from New York. And so, you know, we had the classical elevator pitch. It says, what are you doing? <laughs> so let me tell you what you're doing. It says, oh, yeah, it sounds interesting. So we started talking a bit more. And uh, later we decided to start you know, this company. And initially were uh, 11 people, eight uh, of which are from MIT. And uh, one of the first uh, good things that uh, Jamie did is uh, to introduce me to Stephen. And uh, the rest is history. That's a hell of a journey. And so this is your first entrepreneurial experience outside of academia, I believe, right? Yes, I have some of my technology has been used by other companies, but I never left MIT to give a hand to this company. I just licensed the technology or assigned patents. And this is that it was so much fun that I really actually took first a sabbatical and then a leave of absence from MIT to be part of a company. It has been a great uh, ride uh, even ever since. And uh, we launched in uh, the blockchain uh, in June. And uh, last November, we added uh, another major injection of technology by doing at uh, layer one all kinds of cool stuff, you know, atomic swaps, um, smart contracts, uh, issuance of your own assets, and which usually traditionally are done by smart contracts. And so, therefore, right. they are very fragile. And now we did it very direct, very secure, and uh, very fast. Cool. And Steve, how did you come to meet uh, Silvio? And tell us a bit about your background as well. Yeah, well, I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I got my start in the early days of the internet, in the mid-90s, uh, when I was a, a young guy. I actually started my uh, first company when I was still in college and sort of built that up, uh, sold it in 2000. Uh, but you know, we were one of the first handful of infrastructure providers uh, back then, ended up building 10 data centers around the world and and servicing some you know really interesting projects. From there, I was a co-founder of a company called Blade Logic, which was early data center uh, automation software. And yeah, I'd say it was sort of like a precursor to the a lot of the cloud utilities that people use today. Um, grew that helped grow that business. Um, you know, Blade Logic went public and then was acquired uh, by BMC Software after. And then for the decade or so um, prior to Algorand, um, I was founder and CEO at Fuse, which is a cloud collaboration platform focused on uh, enterprises. And, you know, I guess a couple of years ago, I decided that a uh, new challenge might be fun and, and decided to stop running Fuse day to day. And I had also been fortunate to be involved with uh, Pillar. I was one of the early investors there, which was founded, as Sylvia said, by Jamie Goldstein. The thing that really struck me was that crypto and blockchain tech were sort of the first things I had seen in the intervening 20 years that had you know, a lot of the dynamism and you know also kind of philosophical underpinnings that we saw in the early days of the internet, which um, I know it's sort of hard to believe now, but you know the early days of the internet were very much about self-publishing, giving people a voice out in the market. Um, it was very anti-commercial and, and you know, had a lot of, of libertarian underpinnings as well. So I thought it was fascinating that uh, the crypto had you know, what felt to me like a lot of similar ingredients. If you take a step back, you know, one of the things that I sort of observed was that the financial world and sort of the way people transact hasn't really changed that much in 20 years, whereas you know, the ways we do a lot of other things has 
changed a lot. And so in any event, uh, I had been sort of exploring different things. I was doing some mining with my kids, like as a hobby in the basement of my house. And Jamie suggested uh, one day, he happened to be by my office, that I walk over and and, uh, have a chat with Silvio. (laughs) And to be honest, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I had a fascinating (laughs) discussion with Silvio. And you know, I ended up getting involved and it's been a, a real adventure, but it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I think both the tech and kind of the, the business and, you know, even broader sort of social possibilities are, are awesome here. What was it about Algorand that really caused you to flip the switch and, you know, make a full swing into the crypto space? Well, I think that, you know, kind of the color that I just shared was part of it, but I think what really struck me is, you know, when I was a, a young guy, there was like lots of people who started internet companies and did pretty well, sold their businesses. But you know, what I observed sort of back then was that it wasn't really the first movers, the people who are in super early that built generationally meaningful businesses. It was you know, the folks like Google and others where they got to see what mistakes were made in the first wave, um, really rethink the tech from the ground up, and you know, also partner with business people that uh, that had experience scaling organizations. And you know, to me, it felt like Algorand could possibly be one of the winners in the space. Certainly, Silvio is a brilliant problem solver and, and you know, has created amazing tech. You know, ultimately, that's what really got me excited about the project is that you know, it felt like there was a lot of early enthusiasm, but really, there was going to be a next wave where bigger things were built. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, way to look at it. It's not necessarily the first movers that are successful do you think that this idea applies also to blockchain where there's massive network effects and massive economies that are uh, built around things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and like the first blockchains to hit the market? Well, I think for sure there's network effects and there's first mover advantage. I would say that, you know, often in, in these sort of nascent markets, they take a little longer to develop than people think. And I'd say there's often sort of pre-first movers, where it's really just like the first people who like mm-hmm. got into the space. Um, they often benefit sort of greatly from that, but aren't necessarily the, the sort of companies that uh, end up winning out. If you look at um, where we are today, I think our belief is that we're at the start line of a 20 to 30 year reformulation of, of how the world's financial systems work. That's probably not that dissimilar in terms of scope to what's happened over the past 20 years. I mean, I think using a dial-up modem like in 1996 which I was and trying to use like a crappy browser and waiting five minutes for a banner ad to load is a little also, difficult to like imagine your kids watching Netflix in the back of their car on their iPhone. There's sort of a, a similar progression that has to happen there. I also think though that you know network effects are very important. <laughs> One of the things that Silvio can elaborate on this better than I can is in the the space, the products or sort of the technologies that are out there, the first generation technology simply can't scale to handle the throughput of the entire world. And again, you just need the underlying bandwidth, um, which is why we believe so strongly in solving these fundamental layer one problems, because we think that one, putting the right tech out there is important. I think separately, we aren't believers that it's a single chain kind of, you know, all or nothing is going to rule the day. We think that Bitcoin is for sure establishing establish itself as the reserve currency of the crypto world and will continue to thrive. We also think there'll be other chains that focus on, you know, different elements of what becomes a technology stack that are needed. But we think Algorand can be one of the, the sort of handful of 
of key platforms that succeeds out there. But yeah, I think you need to generate network effects. You need to kind of also make it really simple for developers and for people to build on top of the technologies. And, you know, today the user experiences are terrible on both end user and developer experiences, I'd say kind of across the space. So that's something we're really passionate about is starting to be one of the players that thinks about that and fixes some of those problems. With your previous experience in uh, in cloud-based communications platform, when you came into space and started working with Silvio, did you see anything that blockchain was able to solve? Like, uh, did you see any problems in your previous experience where you thought, huh, blockchains can solve this or like blockchains can provide a solution for like this problem that I've encountered previously? They're very different domain, very different problem surface areas. I think uh, between say communications and, and blockchain, at least from a tech perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think there's some simple things in the world where, you know, blockchain is ultimately about uh, helping create trust between people that have no way of transacting. And I think if you, you know, think about simple cases where I may want to order something mm-hmm. from, you know, a product to be created. Uh, maybe I want to use a Chinese supplier. They want me to send the money before they ship me the goods. Uh, I'd rather they ship me the goods before I send them the money. And if one party doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, you know, the legal system isn't really going to provide a great remedy for that because it's not like people are going to fly and try and use the legal systems in you know, places where they aren't. I think that there's a certain type of business and type of exchange uh, that lends itself naturally toward decentralized systems where sort of both parties can trust in the algorithmic nature of the system versus, you know, kind of a, a paper legal system. And so I think to me, that was uh, something that I thought was very interesting. And what we really feel is that, you know, the decentralized world really represents a new form of economy. And there are certain businesses that by like nature will, you know, have desire to transact there and will solve really meaningful problems for them. You know, there's other businesses that don't need, aren't going to be decentralized. In the early days of the internet, my dry cleaners didn't need a website. They don't need one now. They don't have one. They probably had one somewhere in the middle there, but you know, it was nonsense. And so I, I think that they don't need to be decentralized either, but I think there are a lot of problems that can be solved there. And so if you look at some of the features that we've in, uh, introduced recently, like atomic transfers, the ability for people to exchange in, you know, kind of one step, being able to, you know, create conditional smart contracts and, you know, issue new types of assets, you know, all those things are, are uh, designed with, you know, kind of the kinds of problems in mind that are real business needs that exist out there versus just sort of putting stuff out and seeing what sticks. Sebastian, I totally concur with Stephen. So you must know that uh, this the problem of a fair exchange. For instance, uh, you have an asset that I want, and I, I have an asset that you want. Who gives uh, the asset first to the other one? <laughs> or uh, even uh, if it's not an asset, I want uh, your digital signature on a contract, and you want my digital signature on a contract. Who signs first? By the way, in the 80s, I, that's one of the problems which I tie myself in knots in order to try to solve without a blockchain. Once I saw a blockchain, I says, hey, gee, that is uh, now all these things have a, a much easier solution. Why is the solution much easier? Because it is buried under the, this extraordinary tool, which is the public permissionless blockchain. And so you get all the technology over there. You get for free a lot or almost for free all kinds of very sophisticated ar- architecture. And that is what is the beauty of it, that you have now a platform. If you engineer it correctly, which allows you to do very elementary and very simply all kinds of things that used to be extremely complicated, even with public key cryptography, uh, zero knowledge, uh, and all kinds of other complications. What 
problem does Algorand address that other blockchains have not been able to address so far? What, what does it bring to the table? First of all, I, when you talk about Algorand, I really want to explain uh, to everybody who's listening uh, your podcast that Algorand is, uh, is emotion. <laughs> so different from other blockchain in which what you start is what you get. We continue to innovate another platform and we have a very deep roadmap, which is going to keep us busy for a few years. So let me tell you that the first problem that we actually solved was a famous uh, blockchain uh, trilemma. Right? So that was enunciated a few years back by Buterin, you know, the co-founder of Ethereum. So what does the trilemma say? The trilemma says that uh, it is impossible for a blockchain to enjoy simultaneously all the following three properties, security, decentralization, and scalability. So just imagine this were true. I'm now a company, blockchain by design. I'm a consultant. You come in my store and I say, and I give you a blockchain that is right for you. Okay. Oh, welcome, Sebastian. So I, I have a really a blockchain that is really perfect for you. Do you want this blockchain that is insecure? You say, well, you know, not really. So, okay, you care about security. Good. So how about we give you this blockchain, which is uh, pretty much centralized, but otherwise has all the other property. Well, if you're interested in a blockchain, why do you want to have a, one which is centralized? It is totally nonsensical. And similarly, perhaps you don't care about scalability. No, I do care about scalability because otherwise, what am I going to use of a blockchain for? To interact with friends and family. It is incredible that... Uh, for a long time, uh, no blockchain could uh, add, uh, satisfy these three properties. And I think that the first thing that uh, Algorand did is uh, to somehow prove that trilemma false. Yes, it was backed by a lot of empirical evidence, but uh, there was another way to skin the cat, another way to organize a blockchain that allows to solve, uh, to enjoy all these three properties at once. And uh, that's what Algorand uh, was initially. Then, uh, moving forward, uh, as uh, Stephen mentioned uh, before, uh, the, the ability to have a layer one in a very direct and secure manner, as if there were ordinary payments uh, to handle uh, the issuance of, of assets, uh, to having atomic transactions, and uh, a layer one smart concept is equally important. Just imagine if you are uh, a typical uh, application of a blockchain, uh, think about uh, supply chain, right? So people can put on the blockchain all kinds of things, as let's say is coffee, okay? Somebody in the mountains grew the coffee, okay? So he has to be paid. Somebody has to be bring the coffee from the mountain to the plane. He or she has to be paid too. Somebody puts them on, on a truck and uh, transports to a harbor. That wants to be paid. The ship wants to be paid and, and so on and so forth, right? So who goes to pay first? You have to do all these uh 12, say, payments, I think I mentioned easily, if you match on another six payments on the other side, once you want to deliver the beans, to be roasted, you, know, you have you know, a tremendous amount of payments and you have to update all these 12 ledgers in different currencies all at once. And it takes, with today's technology, three months. So to be able to do it in less than five seconds, treating them all these 12 separate transactions as a single transaction, the fact that you can somehow authorize your own piece of this transaction, knowing that it's not going to be executed at all, but it's going to be executed in a few seconds anyway, and only when all the other transactions are also executed simultaneously with yours, 
is a greater benefit. And so next uh, um, step for us is going to be having a, a general purpose smart contract that is going to be as innovative as it will be in our consensus protocol. Next is going to come with, um, we find the right balance, we believe, between permission and permissionless blockchains, which I believe is going to be a synergy between the two rather than uh, either one or either or. We are going to leave our mark in this uh, history of the, of the blockchain, but the first one was the solution of a trilemma. Talk about how Algorand solves this trilemma. This, this trilemma of you, know, you can only have two of three security, scalability, and decentralization. How do you solve this? I want to, first of all, to make sure that you know, your listeners understand the first thing. What is really hard in a blockchain, what is it? Is a, a database organized in blocks, block one, block two, block three, such that everybody can read all of the blocks. Everybody can write an entry in one of these blocks and nobody can alter neither the content of a block or the order of, of any block. All this um, inalterable database is actually trivial from a cryptographic point of view. If you are a cryptographer, it's trivial. You take the previous block, you hash, the hash of the previous block, you include it in the next block, and that prevents anybody from altering the content of a block or the order of a block. All 2000 and change blockchains are right now, they use the same technology for achieving this inalterability. So what is the challenge? The challenge is choosing the next block because what is the next block is going to contain? All the valid transaction that if you've seen propagated in the network. I want to make a payment to you. I digitally sign it and uh, propagate in the network. Eventually, everybody, every node will get it, but they get it a different point in time. In your opinion, the next block is a bunch of sticking to payments right now of, say, 1,000 payments. I may see 990 payments instead, and they are going to, I'm going to have perhaps seen 100 payments you didn't see, and I missed um, some 80 payments that, that you saw instead before me. In my mind, the next block is slightly different than yours, and the one of Stephen is slightly different from the two of us, and so on and so forth. And of course, uh, even a minute difference or a small percentage difference accumulated block by block creates a tremendous confusion about what uh, the ledger ought to be, what uh, the history of, uh, of all these uh, transactions is going to be. So who chooses the next block? That's the whole difficult problem. And um, Nakamoto, Mr. or Mrs. Nakamoto solution was actually brilliant, was the first uh, idea to say, hey, we are going to have a computational game. We are going to propose a very complex cryptographic riddle. The first one to solve it has the right, if he presents the solution to the riddle, to append the next block to the chain. And this riddle is going to be so hard that no matter how many people on earth try to solve it, only one solution every 10 minutes will be found. And that is actually important, this uh, slowness, this uh, one solution every 10 minutes. Why? Because you say two people, say you in Paris and uh, another lady in Thailand, found a solution a few seconds of each other, then you actually have a fork in the chain because you don't know if the next block is yours or hers to a viewer, right? So what you want to do is to minimize the number of forks because when there is an occasional forks, we can resolve it and go back to a unique single chain. 
But if forks are too frequent, then uh, this resolution uh, is going to be essentially impossible. If you look at this, it's a brilliant uh, idea, but uh, it's as slow, obliges the, the blockchain to grow very slowly. And it's very expensive. Why? Because more people want to participate to the generation of a new block. And therefore, the more people participate, the faster solutions are found. And so therefore, the riddle has to become more and more difficult to the point in which, you know, yet to consume an insane amount of electricity that powers the computers, the only purpose of which is to solve this riddle. And in fact, it's so expensive that fewer and fewer players can actually play this game because you don't have to power only one computer but, uh, and not only a specialized computer, but racks and racks and racks of thousands and thousands of computers. So pretty much this uh, becomes, you know, a fewer and fewer people's game. And right now, uh, the blockchain of Bitcoin somehow could be controlled by free mining pools. And uh, if you look at this, uh, is free mining pools decentralized? No. The world needed an alternate solution, and uh, alternate solutions were found. The first one was uh, proof-of-stake. But it's important to understand that proof-of-stake is not one technology, it's a portfolio technology. Typical proof-of-stake is called a delegated proof-of-stake, which for all intents purposes can be summarized as follows. You see these uh, 21 people? Don't they look honest? Well, if they look honest, I believe they are honest. I further believe they will continue to be honest in the future. So why don't we delegate all of us to just them the problem of generating the next block? So if you have a delegated proof of stake, if you ask me, is centralized from the get-go. At least in Bitcoin, right? Uh, you could everybody could in principle participate by solving the riddle to the generation of the next block. Here we are actually concentrating it into the hands of 21 people. And if you, and then the debate is that 21 is not enough, 50 is the right number. Libra says, no, it's 100, the right number. Well, 21, 50, 100 is all centralized, right? And the next thing is a, a bonded proof of stake. Bonded proof of stake is um, another uh, simple idea, which can be summarized as follows. In bonded proof of stake, it's not 21 people or 200 people. Is as many people are willing to put money in the middle of the table where they cannot touch it, are the ones in charge of generating the next block. And their influence in generating the next block is proportional to the money that they put at stake, bonded, in the middle of the table. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is that I'd like to ask uh, your listeners, say, hey, how much of your disposable income can you put in the middle of the table where is hostage? Right? Not invested, not ready to be spent, just a hostage. The answer is going to be, for most of us, a very small fraction. So in a system like this, not only you make it possible, but you make it easy. You, in fact, you actually roll out a big red carpet for big thieves with deep pocket to put a disproportionate amount of money in the middle of the table for the sole purposes of controlling the chain. What you just described, the there's two issues that are somewhat compounding. So the first issue is that one of the problems that blockchains has, and I would say is probably the base layer problem with all blockchains, is a networking problem. It's getting blocks to people fast enough so that everybody can agree this is the next block. I believe it was um, Uri uh, Klarman of Blocksprout who came on the podcast a little while back, and this is how he describes it. 
is the fundamental problem with layer one is a networking problem. The issue that you have when you can't get over this networking problem is the issue of centralization of power. And so with Bitcoin or with proof of stake or delegated proof of stake uh, or bonded proof of stake, rather, there is this issue where at some point specialization makes it so that you have centralization of validating power. And that's just due to the nature that validating a blockchain is complicated. And we're going to need specialized actors to do this, this sort of thing. Essentially correct, but I'm, I, I, won't, I beg to differ a little bit. So there is network without you know, much you know, very sophisticated routers. One block can actually be seen by, can cover an entire planet in a second. That's not the problem in itself. The problem is actually choosing the next block. Once it's chosen, you can propagate it very quickly. But choosing the block is what you know, slows down a lot of things. And that's why you needed to have the computational game that slow down Bitcoin. And that's you have uh, the concentration of power. Let the 21 people, you, you narrow the number of people who can choose the block. You can choose the next block more quickly. So in Algorand, essentially, we solve a problem in a very counterintuitive way to enable anyone who has a token of Algorand any token has the same ability to participate to block generation. Essentially, here is as it works at a, at a high level, right? Every token, once you see block 100, the question is, what is block 101, right? So what happens is that uh, in Algorand, you have, uh, think of it like uh, two magic phases. The magic is actually replaced by mathematics, but never mind, uh, <laughs> over the radio, it's easier to talk about magic. Magic phase one consists of, of the following. Every token is going to ask, am I perhaps the one who are going to choose the block? To solve this problem, you actually do a lottery, a cryptographically fair lottery that decides if you are going to propose a block. The lottery is organized so that um, simplifying things, there is only one winner. And uh, the winner, if you win the lottery, the lottery is cryptographic means two things. A, I cannot, even if I have enormous computational resources, to increase my chance of winning. But if I win, I have a proof that I won the lottery, and I can somehow disseminate to the network my proof that I won the lottery, and therefore, that's the block that I propagated. And I propagated my chosen block. I prove this proof and the, the block I propagated at the same time. End of phase one. Phase two, somehow, everybody again, tries to run a different lottery. This time, the lottery selects at random a 1,000 tokens. And the owner of these 1,000 tokens are part of a committee who agrees on the block proposed by the first person. And why do you want to agree? Because any society has a percentage of bad actors, maybe 1%, 2%, maybe 10% if you live in a very dangerous society. And so when this happens, if a bad actor has won the first lottery and propagates a block, nobody's guaranteed that he or she cannot tell you one block and me a different block and Stephen a yet another block and your listener all kinds of different blocks, thereby generating confusion. There is not a chain anymore. There is a, a mess. But when you have actually a thousand tokens, essentially selected at random, and if most of the tokens are in honest hands, which I believe is a safe assumption, 
then the majority of these tokens are going to be belonging to honest people, and therefore, the committee has an honest majority, and uh, such a committee agrees on only one block and not two. And therefore, that essentially is how you guarantee that there is one block and this block has been uh, agreed by thing. So the real question is, how do I guarantee that I'm part of this uh, committee? Because, again, it's a cryptographically fair lottery. If I win, I get a proof. I cannot cheat the lottery to improve the chances of winning. So if I'm a part of the committee, I give you a proof that I'm part of the committee, that I won the lottery, and I give you my opinion up or down about the validity of the block. And this pair of uh, proof and uh, opinion is disseminated over the network. So why is this scalable? Because how long does it take to run this cryptographic lottery? One microsecond. That's very fast. Okay, so that is scalable, scalable. Is it this distributed? Well, absolutely it's distributed because we are not concentrating the power in one person, 21, 50, or 100. Every token, and in Algorand, there are 10 billion tokens, has the same probability of every other token of winning the lottery and be part of this committee. So that is very distributed. And by the way, if you win the lottery, what do you have to do? You have to propagate your winning ticket, your proof that you won the lottery, and your opinion about the block. A thousand people, tops, can win this lottery. Can the network absorb the dissemination of a, a thousand small messages? Absolutely. That's why it's scalable and distributed. I just want to stay on, on this, on the lottery for, for one second. So when you say a thousand people can win the lottery at any time, of those thousand people, there, there's one participant that ends up creating the next block and propagating that block to the rest of the network, correct? Yeah, that up happens in the first phase. In the second phase is a, essentially an agreement phase in which you say, okay, we heard something about, uh, we reach a Byzantine agreement and Byzantine agreement is a process by which say a thousand people or a group of people, the majority of which you know, are honest, they try to establish a common uh, output. So a common block. And the block is that if I, uh, we are going to have this process, Byzantine process at the end of which I output one block, and I know that if I'm honest, then every other honest uh, person, the same um, vote of the block that I'm propagating. Therefore, if you see a block that, say, has 700 votes of this committee, you know it belongs to the committee because of the, you have seen the winning tickets. And if you see 700 winning tickets voting for the same block, you say, oh, gee, that has to be the block that is the next block in the chain. And okay. end of story. You don't have to wait that there are possible forks. You don't have to wait that uh, uh, new blocks are actually added to my block uh, and over and over again so that the block becomes deep enough in the chain. As soon as you see a block packed by the majority of the committee member, bingo, that's the next block. Our next step, we agree on the next block and so on and so forth. So I'd like to ask you about about how this information is propagated. And, and specifically, my question here is, how do you get over network propagation issues that can arise, right? Because if the assumption here is that anybody can be a validator and there are, there are no specialized miners, then someone can be validating on a mobile phone, presumably, or maybe on like a remote, like on a, on a desktop in a remote location. And the quality of each's internet connection can vary widely. 
And if if one has to propagate a block, let's say we now assume that blocks, you know, if we're scaling, that blocks can get, you know, at several several megabytes, for instance. How do you solve that propagation issue where you don't have special specialization of validators that have very high end internet connections and that that can propagate these messages and and the blocks at high speeds? First of all, even with a modest uh, 20 megabit connections, uh, you can do it quite well. And um, they are heard by everybody. But remember that uh, we produce a, a block in five seconds just because we want to make sure that this block is actually seen uh, across the network. But it doesn't need to be seen by everybody. All, what we need is to make sure that one block is seen by at least a not by everybody, because you're never sure somebody's at the edge of a network, maybe 90% of the participants. And that is uh, the idea. There is actually a further idea that um, uh, Algorand has, a property that we have not discussed yet, that guarantees actually that um, the protocol security does not depend on the security on the underlying communication network. So in other words, if somebody an adversary tampers with a network, communication network, with the wires, with the routers, it can destroy somehow proof-of-work approaches, but it cannot destroy the algorithm approach. Of course, if an adversary prevents all of us from sending messages, well, nobody can produce a block, not in algorithm, not in Bitcoin, not in Ethereum, not in anything, right? Because mm. if we are isolated in Faraday cages, nobody talks. But if you can somehow partition the network, even by cutting wires or by reprogramming for an hour the relevant routers, and you say isolated, think of it, a continent, say South America, for an hour, then suddenly, by the time in which you realize something wrong happens and you patch together the communication network properly, you restart the routers, you reconnect the wires, whatever you have to do, unfortunately, in classical uh, protocols, a lot of people can lose a lot of money because you can actually have double spending after such an attack. So people usually worry about attacks on the protocol, but the protocol is a, a communication protocol and is only as good as the network on which it runs. And somehow it could actually be cheaper or more possible for an adversary to attack the network rather than the protocol. And in Algorand, you are secure against the protocol attacks and network attacks. First of all, so if I may spend, uh, I don't know, is, uh, some time to say, why is Algorand secure about the, the protocol attack first? So before I was saying that, remember, I, I have a winning ticket if I'm part of a committee to approve a block and I propagate my winning ticket and my opinion about the block. Now let's assume that, uh, that I am a, a bad guy, which is extremely powerful. I'm so powerful that I can corrupt any 1,000 people on earth that I want simultaneously, okay? At the snapping of my fingers, okay? Very easy for me to do so. Mm -hmm. Whom I want to corrupt? Well, I want to corrupt the committee of 1,000 people, most of it is going to approve the next block. That's where the security of algorithm comes from. But I have a problem. I do not know whom I should corrupt because the committee is selected by a cryptographic lottery, so I do not know which people on earth are going to win this lottery? If you in Paris, this lady in Shanghai, and, or, and so on and so forth. But as soon as the people spontaneously come forward by announcing, here is my winning ticket, I'm part of the committee, and here is my opinion about the block, pay attention to it, 
Now I know whom I should target, and I can corrupt them immediately. But guess what? At that point, the message of the committee members are virally spreading across the network, and I cannot put them back in the bottle no more than the U.S. government or any other government can put back in the bottle a message virally propagated by WikiLeaks. So in some sense, Algorand is secure because beforehand, an adversary does not know whom he should corrupt, and ex post is a bit too late to corrupt them. Because of the randomness in the lottery. And then how, do, how does Algorand protect against the network component? Okay, first of all, it's easier to uh, let me first understand you know, why, say, Bitcoin is uh, vulnerable to uh, network attack, in particular to partition attack, okay? So to, it's a bit easier to, to see the problem we're trying to solve first. So, okay, let's assume that all miners in the world are all honest. Okay, very good, uh, good news. And miners are um, geographically dispersed, right? And uh, there are uh, in North America, South America, Africa, Asia, um, uh, Europe, all over the place, okay? Five populated continents. Antarctica is still uh, not very populated. So imagine that an adversary cuts the cables going to South America. So South America is isolated from the other continents. There are five continents. South America is isolated for an hour. I mean, a smart adversary allows happy birthday messages to go across, but Bitcoin control messages are not let in or out of South America. So what happens? A South American can extend the the chain among themselves with every time that one of them solves a riddle, attaches a block. So you start producing blocks, but at a much slower pace. Why a slower pace? Because one-fifth of the miners in South America, so we, we say with speed 20, you attach a block. Meanwhile, the other four continents also solve the riddles, but they solve it at a much faster speed than South America because there are four times the miners in the rest of the world than in South America. So they proceed at a speed of 80 miles an hour. Think about two cars. One goes 80 miles an hour. One goes 20 miles an hour. Even if the, the car who goes 80 miles an hour starts later, eventually will surpass the other one and will form the longer chain. So if I'm a bad guy, what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend a billion dollars in South America, get an asset, say, a super-duper transatlantic ocean liner, whatever I can buy with a billion dollars. And once I have it, I can even reconnect the cables because at that point, my debt will be erased. Why? Because after I put together the wires, even all miners, including the South American miners, will say, gee, what we were doing? We were elongating the, the shorter chain. The longer chain is this, this other one. Let's work on the longer chain instead. And my debt, my billion-dollar expense, is erased. And essentially, that's uh, how partitioning the network, even if all miners come from the first to the last one, are totally honest, that's a problem. Instead, if you think about Algorand, now we said, you know, we have a, a committee of a thousand people, and somebody partitioned the network in the two chunks or three chunks or four chunks. What can happen? First of all, it could happen that the network production of blocks stalls, but the same could happen with anybody else because in no connected part of the world you find enough votes to mint a new block. It's okay. Suspension is not a problem because after connectivity is restored, you'll continue 
where you left it with nobody losing any money. But the other thing can happen is that, well, one part of the world gets maybe 100 members of the committee, but the other 900 are connected enough and they see that a new block has, they are capable of producing a new block. That's okay. So a new block is added to the chain, which is seen, say, by four-fifths of the world, but not by another fifth of the world. That is not a problem because once the connection is resumed, nobody has lost money and everybody says, oh, gee, I didn't see a block for a while, but I see that when I was offline, so to speak, another 10 blocks have been added or another 20 blocks have been added. That's the chain. Let me continue from there. So in other words, there is a very big difference. Anybody can tamp by tampering with the network can oblige a blockchain to come to a stop, a temporary stop. Maybe yes, maybe not. But even if it comes to a stop, when you resume, nobody should be able to should lose any money. That's what Algorand allows. Okay. And so can you explain then this lottery, how it works and how it leverages verifiable random functions? Well, verifiable random function is a way essentially to say you are going to associate to anything, but like a bunch of uh, random bits, which are not under my control, but I can prove what the bits I got, right? And so what the bits that I want to associate it is to say, is this public key of mine or is this token of mine a member of this committee, committee number N plus one? To this event, a verifiable random function associated a string of, think of it like uh, 300 random bits. These bits are not in my control because they depend on the input, which is committee membership or block N plus one. This sentence alone as for my public key. This gives immediately a bunch of random bits, which is not under control of my key or anybody. So, and from these bits, essentially, you can interpret like you know, a number between zero and one, you put a decimal point in front of it and you have a, a binary expansion of a random a number between zero and one. And you say, if this random number is less than a given threshold, my public key is part of a committee. If it's not, it's not part of a committee. And because it's provable, whenever I am below the threshold and I'm part of a committee, I prove to you my public key as associated with numbers for block N plus one, therefore I'm part of this committee, here is the proof of these bits. By seeing the proof, you know that the bits are random. By seeing the proof, you know that I could not have tampered with these bits in any shape or form, and therefore I'm part of this committee. The end. Roughly, that's how it works. So it's some randomness that you can prove, but you cannot choose your own random bits like nobody should do. They are somehow automatically assigned uh, to your uh, your public key. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around, around okay. the, the concept me, of the verifiable Let me give you really a, an alternative fun. solution, which is a little bit more, um, less mathematically sophisticated, but easier to understand. Okay. Remember, you have a, a signature, digital signature key and you have a public key. Call it PK. Who knows the secret key associated to PK? Only you do. Right. I cannot forge your signatures. So what happens is that when you want to associate a random number to your public key relative to an event X, what do you do? You digitally sign X. Only you can do the signature. I cannot predict what your signature is. Further, you hash your signature of X. Everybody can do once the signature has been produced. So 
the hash of your signature of X is essentially a random number. A verifiable random function can do better, but that's good enough, right? So, and that is your signature that you associate, associated to your public key and event X. Now, I cannot dispute that this is your signature because anybody can verify whether the signature of X is correct or not relative to your public key. And having done this, everybody can hash the signature. And having done that, everybody computes a string of random bits associated or pseudo-random bits associated to your public key and X. And nobody can dispute it. Only you know which random bits are associated to public key and event X because only you can digitally sign X. But if you can give me a digital signature of X, I can verify your signature. If the signature is correct, then I can hash it. And then I can check whether or not the bits that you claim to be the random bits associated to your public key and event X are right or not. Essentially, that is the way it works. So in, in this particular proof-of-stake model that you, you have an algorithm, there's this randomness. The, the coins are chosen at random proportional to one's coin holdings, right? So that could be, I guess, sort of like their, their voting power. And so your probability of being chosen in this lottery is proportionally higher if you have many coins, right? Does it make a difference if one's coins are in a single account or in separate accounts? How, how does one stake, I guess is the way to put it, uh, their coins in, in this lottery? Correct. Because essentially this lottery is a token by token, right? So assume that uh, in Algorand there are 10 billion tokens. If you have one token, you have one in 10 billion probability of being chosen. Okay. If you have uh, two tokens, you have a two in 10 billion probability of being chosen. If you have a hundred tokens, you have a hundred other things. And if you look at this, Assume that you have like a thousand algos, a thousand tokens. You say, gee, I want to maximize my probability of being chosen. Should I hold these thousand tokens in, in one public key or should I split it in two public keys or should I split a thousand public key, each one with one token? Because your number of tokens does not change and the probability of selecting is token by token, whether you hold all your token in a single key or you distribute your thousand token across a thousand keys, your probability of winning the lottery is absolutely the same. That is the, the good part. The only thing is that the way I describe it, the token by token, yet to worry, say, gee, but now you have to do a thousand digital signatures and a thousand hash. So, and, and we have actually the technology to speed this up. So to make sure that uh, in a single signature, you realize if you win or lose, whether or not you have one token or a billion token is the same easy. One signature is enough. You need a bit, a bit uh, more mathematics to do that, but that's what we do. Okay. Stephen, I'd like to turn it over to you a little bit and talk about some of the primitives that you've built into Algorand. So we were talking about this before the show. And so you've built in three components into the Algorand uh, layer one, atomic swaps, asset issuance, and a smart contract language. Why did you feel that these components needed to exist at layer one? And uh, why not have people build them as uh, additional layers on top of the on top of the blockchain, such as has been the case with you know, so many other systems? Uh, yeah, well, I th there's a couple of things that I think are, are critical. And 
you know, sort of adds on to one, just the solving of the fundamental problem of being able to transact at scale. Uh, and so then, you know, really thinking about once you've solved kind of these fundamental pro- uh, problems around the consensus protocol uh, and creating a blockchain in a way that, that can scale, you know, what do people want to do? And sort of, you know, we looked around at, at what people are actually using blockchains for. Um, asset issuance is a big one. For sure, whether it's new kinds of tokens, um, they may be currencies, they may be security tokens. Um, we're seeing all kinds of interesting, you know, uses for digital asset in- issuance. The, you know, the, the the second is being able to to trade those, do it in a in a safe and secure way. But I, I think if you if you take a step back, about fifteen percent of all crypto has been lost or stolen, and uh, you know, a lot of there's a lot of high profile situations where. You know, the use of Turing complete smart contracts um, has led to undesired consequences. And, you know, I think that's sort of one piece. The other is the need to sort of craft things within smart contracts um, requires a lot of duplication of, you know, what should be very simple things that people want to do every day. You know, as a result, that's what we really looked at. You know, what are the fundamental primitives that you need to have inside a blockchain that enable the use cases uh, that people are doing, um, but do it in a way that's that's very simple that avoids kind of some of the pitfalls and the possibility of bugs or other problems from from cropping up, and that's sort of what led to uh, led to ultimately the the framework that we've created. It's it's really look at the fundamental elements, whether it's asset issuance, economic exchange, um, or being able to apply conditions um, under which those assets should should change hands, and do that in a way that's both quite simple, um, but also um, relies on the security of the protocol. Rather than security of, or rather than somebody's ability to to create um, programs um, that are secure in and of themselves, by building these these functionalities directly into the layer one, do you foresee a situation where people may have use cases that fall outside of the scope of what you've built, and therefore it could be perhaps limiting to those applications? Well, I, you know, I, I think there's a couple of things. One, you know, we do think there's a, a place for general purpose smart contracts, and um, I'm sure Sylvia would be happy to elaborate on that um, a little bit more in a minute. But I, I think beyond that, you know, having platforms that are fit for purpose, I think is is very important. And, you know, we believe that there's going to be a, it's a multi-chain world. There's going to be different um, people focusing on different problems. Having the right fundamental sort of financial and asset primitives um, and blockchain primitives in place um, in a way that enables people to build applications, create financial products, and, you know, really expand the scope of what they're doing uh, is, you know, critical. And so, you know, I think we're definitely not trying to boil the ocean and we're not suggesting that, you know, the underlying primitives we've created are, are, you know, fit for every single purpose out there. But for what people are doing on blockchains today, um, we think we cover you know, 80, 90% of the territory in a way that's safe, secure, and, and very scalable. And I think you can start to see, you know, that happening. If you think about uh, people who are transacting across borders, people who have complex business relationships and supply chains, we're seeing, you know, a lot of interesting use cases um, starting to emerge. I think even beyond that, though, you know, just as people want to tokenize more assets, I think it's a little bit misunderstood in the market, um, even just finality alone, as an example. Knowing who owns what is incredibly important. If you have a billion dollar asset, you really need to know who owns it. Um, and if it's owned by hundreds or thousands of people, you know, they need to understand that as well. So I think, you know, all these things go hand in hand. We think sort of the, the fundamental 
uh, consensus protocol and underlying technologies are, are incredibly important. But then also being able to, to do things in a, a straightforward way um, is really necessary. And I think it goes back to, you know, one of the most fundamental things we look at is, you know, today there's about, I don't know, you probably know the number better, but about the 5 billion people, I think, on the internet. There's around 20 million developers in the world. If, I'm, if we're being generous, about 100,000 of those developers um, build blockchain applications full time. And the other 19.9 million don't. And one of the things that we think is a gigantic problem in the space is that the developer experiences today are very complicated. It requires that people learn new programming languages. It requires they learn a whole suite of technologies in order to become experts. And we think that um, ultimately people need to understand that a platform like Algorand is suitable for what they need and possesses the right underlying technical properties. Um, We also need to make it really simple for them um, to use the tools they already know in order to you know, start to take advantage of decentralized elements in their applications um, where it's appropriate. And so I think that's where, from our standpoint, you know, some of these layer one primitives really eliminate a lot of the complexity that people are faced with when they start to get into the space, not only uh, making a better long-term uh, way to kind of issue assets, but also just makes it possible for people to, to do things in a really simple, straightforward way. And we've seen the power of simple developer experiences over and over, uh, whether it's companies like Twilio or Stripe or others that you know take something that was previously very complicated and required a whole bunch of systems and, and really boiling it down to something very simple. So talk a little bit about the smart contract language that you've developed, uh, Teal, I believe it's called, and how it differs from other general purpose smart contract languages that people would be used to. So first of all, this is a, a language which is very simple. It's somehow 30 instructions. Compare integers, multiply, verify a digital signature, a hash, something like this. Okay, and that was not done for doing general smart contract, but we tried to put together 30 instructions that can let you do a lot of things. And as Stephen said, they say, hey, you know, most of the time people want to do <laughs> For instance, atomic swaps, that's a good idea. They want to issue and tokenize uh, assets, that's another good idea. And uh, they want to somehow say uh, post and sale. So in other words, I, I have an asset. I want to leave for, uh, for a picnic on Sunday. I post it on the chain for sale my asset and I, I name a price. And they say, whoever wants to snatch this asset for this price becomes his. I go for uh, my picnic, I come back, and I may found, oh, I have the money I wanted, and somebody now has the asset without any interaction, right? So these are essentially fundamental primitives, or if you want, you want to say, I give you a loan, and you give me interest rate every month, and if you don't pay, then the collateral of the loan becomes automatically mine. So there is a bunch of things that the financial world, uh, they, they want to need, and we feel that if we give them a suite, a portfolio of ready-made templates, of course, you can adjust the price, you can adjust you know, um, all the various parameters, but essentially in a single line of code, you call the primitives function, functionality you want, I think it's, it's going to be easier to get your job done. And if you don't find the primitive already realized in this portfolio, at least you can compose by putting together two or three of the primitives you found there. And I think that is a, 
Um, uh, I think as a first approach to smart contract, I think that is a, it goes a long way. So that is not, TIL is not intended to be a language that is uh, for general purposes smart contract, but uh, it does the job for 80, 90% of it, of the need for smart contracts out there. For all the examples I discussed are easily done in TILs, uh, in TIL. And so that is the job of TIL. And you must make it sure that these um, contracts are actually executed and verified as much in the few seconds it takes to generate a block. And it cannot slow down the production of a block. So even if um, in a block there are a thousand, uh, say, of these uh, layer one smart contracts, the block is produced in the same amount of time, still in in five seconds. Mm -hmm. I think this is pretty good. Along the side, we actually having our own architecture that uh, as soon as we, uh, we are ready to talk about, <laughs> I'll be happy to be your host another time, <laughs> Sebastian. Uh, it's about a general smart contract because I think that has been a, a very great idea, but again, uh, the solutions uh, are not as satisfying uh, as, uh, as possible because these smart contracts are A, very slow right now. They are uh, very expensive and somehow they're actually prone to error. This error comes from many sources, not only because programming is a, is hard, but also because when you issue an asset as via smart contract, your definition, operational definition of an asset and mine may be a very tiny difference that they become somehow uh, arise when we actually try to treat different assets, uh, an asset made by you with a, a software developed for, by me for handling my own assets. And uh, that is a problem. So having this layer one solution for 90% of the problems, I think is a good idea because everything is treated the same uniform manner and uh, direct manner and uh, at the same uh, uh, level that uh, handles the consensus protocol, which is the safest level of, of all of them. So Stephen, you were talking earlier about developer experience. And I, I agree that for a lot of developers who are coming into the space, there's there's a lot to learn when approaching you know blockchain platforms for the first time. I mean, so learning the language is one of those things, but I think that for the most part, it's learning about this new paradigm and how to operate within this new paradigm that is so different from what people are used to, you know, building with tr- more traditional platforms. One of the things that's that's great about general purpose smart contract languages, though, is that it it has like all of this, this innovation has come out of it, right? Like the entire DeFi space came out essentially of one could argue, you know, Ethereum and and Solidity and what people were able to do and build in, in Solidity. And so I, I wonder if you know, having a smart contract language that's so restrained you know, as a developer, you know, if you want to go and build like the next new thing, if your scope is is somewhat limited, do you think that uh, it will cause a situation where people are not able to really innovate, but just sort of like rebuild what has already been built and mirror existing platforms or rebuild existing models on Algorand? Yeah, well, we did a lot of analysis on this. I mean, about you know, eighty-five, ninety percent of of uh, what people have used smart contracts for um, today could be done inside Algorand without you know any problem. I think there's sort of this argument about Turing complete smart contracts versus non-Turing complete smart contracts. Obviously, we fall um, in the non-Turing complete side. That doesn't mean 
that there isn't a lot of functionality and uh, you know ability to um, you know cover many different use cases in there. You know, I'd also suggest there's a big difference here between you know kind of choosing a language and something else, which is uh, when people make mistakes in sort of the blockchain and crypto world, they're typically losing people's money, including their own often. And we think that like protecting that is like job number one and you know very important. And so I, I think that's a consideration that everybody needs you know to really think carefully about. And I, I think there's one other point that's um, important to consider is is that we think that the underlying language you know doesn't really need or sort of the under, underlying nature of the smart contract matters less than the quality of the developer tools that are around it. So as an example, we just released a Python library um, that allows people to use Visual Studio. Um, they can write their scripts in Python. It makes it very easy to, to compile them into Teal smart contracts. You know, we think that the, the space needs more of that, um, where people can just use the tools and languages they already know, and you know, have use that as the sort of way to interact with the underlying blockchain platforms versus having to learn something entirely new. And I think you know the the number of developers that are are willing to go learn something entirely new is not that large, and we need to really be focused on doing things that encourage new people into the market. I think that's what we're very focused on, which is less on sort of these very specific technical details and more if you think about asset issuance, taking advantage of decentralization, thinking about like what conditions you know you need in order for for money to change hands atomic transfers, it's really enabling people to do all these things in a very simple way. And I, I think that's going to be critical because what we really need are sort of uh, more developers, more applications, more people taking advantage of the technology to really draw in a mainstream audience. Sebastian, may I add uh, something to this? Sure. So first of all, again, I want to make sure that layer one smart contracts are what the word says. Smart contracts in Algorand that can be done on layer one. Is this a good thing? Yes. Is this the only thing? No. This is just a stepping stone that we are going to have towards our general smart contract. But it's important to have a large suite of things that you can do safely and directly and and, and very fast. And by the way, I want to say very cheaply, and certainly you can combine this this, uh, suite of programs to write your own more simply. But if you are a developer, you know what? uh, what your most first concern is going to be is that the cost of gas to power smart contract is so high that this essentially affects your bottom line. Why? Because your customer has a finite budget anyway. I, if I know that I write a program, it's going to be used maybe by millions of people. However, these millions of people have gone to spend so much in gas how much of their money can I transfer into my pockets to reward for my good efforts? Very small. So in a, in a situation in which, you know, you have a, a layer one smart contract, it takes a million algo uh, in payment. I mean, if you find something useful for, for humanity to do, you, you will find a way to be actually remunerated for your efforts. I think the cost is an important uh, thing too, because otherwise, you know, in the question of this, efficiency and the cost efficiency of these layer one smart contracts should not be lost. Yeah, I agree that uh, the cost efficiency is, is super important. So when it comes to the types of things that people are building on Algorand, uh, the network went live last year. 
what are the use cases that you're seeing emerge on Algorand? And more specifically, like, does the company have a sort of clear go-to-market strategy and for like types of applications that it's looking to encourage people to build on the platform? Well, I think definitely if, if you look at sort of the suitability of, of the functionality we've rolled out, um, I think there's um, a lot of broad use cases that are out there. But I, I think um, what we've seen is, you know, a lot of different people who are looking to be able to issue tokens, whether currencies or security tokens in a way that's scalable and secure and, and can kind of serve their purposes over the long run, especially as they start to, to launch larger businesses um, to that effect. Um, we've had several announcements um, over there of you know, different stable coins. You know, we've also announced uh, partnerships with, with platforms like Securitize, which are you know, it's a layer two um, platform supporting security tokens and enabling people to issue products in compliant ways. I think the, you know, the second is you know, once you have assets, atomic transfers becomes very important. So we've seen uh, people building decentralized exchanges and you know other elements that sort of facilitate transfer of that. But but I think more broadly, you know, we think there's a lot of opportunity in, in DeFi applications. I think if you look at you know 2019, you know, we started to see um, some of that build up. We think 2020 there's going to be a lot more focus on different ways to earn yield in uh, in crypto and ways to earn yield on on platforms. And we think the underlying primitives that we've built um, enable people to, uh, you know, really do that in a, a straightforward way. You know, infrastructural components like uh, like Securitize that build on top of Algorand, others are going to be more financial products uh, that launch that that I think we think are really exciting. Uh, and all those require, you know, assets to be on chain. So I think that's sort of one sort of fundamental area. You know, the other we're seeing, you know, I think really interesting business use cases that just lend themselves towards uh, being in a decentralized economy, things like supply chain and, you know, really understanding like whether certain conditions are met. You know, an example is, you know, transporting perishable goods, making sure that they, you know, reach, uh, they're sort of at a consistent temperature uh, that, you know, no triggers have, uh, have been run before they get delivered and, you know, payment happening automatically as long as, you know, those conditions are met. So we're starting to see more uh, a variety of, of decentralized applications um, starting to roll out kind of along those that are, are, I'd say, more business use cases. I think generally, though, it's a combination of, one, getting the right infrastructure in place, getting the right assets on chain, really being an enabler for, you know, new and, in, and innovative DeFi applications. Um, the second is, you know, continue to broaden our developer tools and encourage more business use cases that are sort of fundamentally interesting for decentralization. And then I think beyond that, you know, what we've started to see, I'd say more from an overall perspective is um, while there's a ton of innovation in the DeFi space, you know, fundamentally, there's not that many users and not that much money floating around in there. And there's a traditional financial world that materially has all the world's money, um, but it's much slower to adopt. And we think a platform like Algorand and more specifically a company like Algorand that just has experience um, you know, working with people in different settings is important to kind of bring those two together. Because uh, I think definitely the traditional financial world, you know, has interest in, you know, the innovation that's happening. Um, but I think it hasn't really been presented to them necessarily in a way that, that they can take advantage of. I see. Now, can you tell me about the Algorand Foundation and the role that it will play moving forward with regards to the company? Sure. So um, first, I guess I'll just clarify, you know, Algorand Inc. is a U.S. company. We're based in Boston. We are creators of technology. Um, obviously, we're one of the core developers of the Algorand protocol. 
um, but we also build other other software here. And you know, our sort of go to market model is is similar to you know other open source projects like Red Hat or MongoDB, where you know we'll ultimately continue working on the tech, but also um, we'll provide value added services to people who are looking to build uh, in the space. The Algorand Foundation is responsible for um, overseeing governance of the public network and separately responsible for the issuance of the algo as a uh, as a token. And so, you know, their responsibilities are really kind of fundamentally around that, along with community awareness and, and continuing to develop the ecosystem. And so where's the foundation based? A foundation is based in Singapore. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. And so then the foundation manages the issuance of the public network, you said. So I presume then the Governance Algorand, of the public network. Oh, sorry, governance of the public network. That I presume then that Algorand can also be used in a permission setting. So are you pursuing also that uh, as a business, like implementing permission networks for clients? Well, for sure, we think that there's going to be need for um, you know different ways of, of interacting with the technology. Uh, I think we feel it's very important to solve the public permissionless or have a public permissionless network as sort of the fundamental basis um, for everything. And even if people are creating their own chains, you know, we feel they should be derived from the the public network. Um, Silvio may want to elaborate on that a little bit more, but um, yeah, uh, yeah. So let's put this away. Um, is there a need uh, for uh, using a permissioned version of Algorand? Absolutely, because of very often certain industry in particular are regulated. Think about healthcare or think about financial network, and they need to have, uh, they cannot have their transaction to be visible to an open uh, public network. So therefore, you can use Algorand because and it's consensus protocol. In fact, the same algorithm, uh, absolutely, but uh, in a permissioned, uh, shielded away way to get a permission version of Algorand. Why to build a, a permission network on Algorand? Well, there is a variety of reasons. <laughs> Reason number one is that Frankly, you may want to scale it later, and you can, and you can uh, start to say with twelve validators, and then uh, increase them to a hundred, and then increase it to a thousand, or uh, hundreds of thousands, or millions, or billions, if you want. Why do you want to do that? Well, because assume that you have a financial network, perhaps of five large banks that decided to operate during a permission in within a permissioned blockchain, but then uh, later. What if they want to enlarge uh, uh, their club to serve also medium-sized banks, then small banks, then credit unions? Well, now we are talking about thousands and thousands, right? And then at that point, if everybody wants to participate to consensus, how do you accommodate them? A consensus mechanism that is good for 10 may not work for 100 or for 1,000 or for 10,000, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very going to be very hard to change yours in the middle of a race. So you are going to risk the problem to have a legacy problem in six months, if you want to do it. Instead, by taking, because scaling down is easy, scaling up is hard. But if you start with a, a, a blockchain that scales to the billions, you can certainly start with, <laughs> with that. And you know that uh, scalability upwards and decentralized upwards, if you want, is never going to be a problem. The second thing, reason you want to have it to say, hey, I like this you know, layer one immediate layer one contract. So if you have Algorand, permission version of Algorand, not only you have a peel, not only you have atomic swaps, et cetera, et cetera, but you are going to have any other innovation that is going to be in the Algorand network 
right away. Who doesn't want to want to have automatically? I mean, who doesn't want to want to have you know layer one smart contract uh, for those smart contracts that you can do in layer one? I mean, uh, the answer is uh, is a clear yes. But finally, I think that uh, a main reason to use algorithm is that we have this uh, architecture for having a core chain, which is a permission version of algorithm. When not only is it completely autonomous, they choose their own validators and they run their own consensus mechanism. They are totally autonomous. But by being a core chain of algorithm, what you have is the ability to interact with another core chain. And that, I think, it is an incredible advantage. Because very often people fall into the trap to know with whom they want to interact in the future. So you say, oh, I'm a bank, I'm a financial institution. I know with whom I want to interact, with other banks and other financial institutions. That's why we are building this blockchain with our, say, 10 financial institutions. But would you be surprised if there's another 10 big pharmaceutical or hospitals, they form their own healthcare blockchain? Not at all. Well, if, but if healthcare is 20% of the economy, is it credible that a blockchain made by financial institution don't want to interact with 20% of the economy? Of course, they, they will eventually interact. But guess what? At that point, unless you get into the score chain infrastructure, by having your own permission blockchain, you are imprisoned by your own castle. You can, with transparency, speed, and everything else, interact inside your own original constituency, but you are blocked, prevented from actually interacting. And when people say, oh, but you know, we have some interoperability program, yeah, you know, <laughs> claiming is easy, claiming interoperability is easy. The question is really, how do you actually implement? And they actually by the Algorand core chain, that is a great way to enjoy your cake and eat it too. And, and, and because you can actually not only act with transparency and efficiency and trust inside, but also with the outside world. And strange enough, actually, you can uh, you can actually uh, take advantage also of a permissionless blockchain to facilitate this interaction. One of the roles of the core chains would be to facilitate communications between sort of permission chains by providing an interoperability layer. Is that correct? Yeah. Let me give you an example, right? Assume now you are a member of uh, the blue chain. You actually are, right? I am a member of the red chain. And Stephen is the Algorand main permissionless chain. So you and I, Sebastian, the blue chain and the red chain are permission, but they are co-chains of Algorand, right? As I said, I eventually say, hey, gee, Sebastian, you have a very interesting asset you have here. Call it the circle. I have a very interesting asset to you, call it the triangle. How do we swap it? Okay, if you and I were in the same co-chain, by an atomic swap of algorithm, we can swap in, in a few seconds, done. But we are in different co-chain. And so I must be careful because if you don't trust me, in particular, if I swap, by, if I create a, a bigger opaque pipe by which you and I can exchange the triangle and the circle. How do you know that I'm not selling the triangle two or three times over to other co-chain in another separate and opaque manner? You'll never know. So instead, what conceptually what you want to do is that it's very easy for me to assign the triangle to my same public key 
in the Algorand chain. Why? Right. Because the Algorand main chain is permissionless. So my public key can is automatically a key of of of, of the main chain Algorand. So, so it's, it's similar the to the way that, that the Cosmos works, for instance. So I mean, Cosmos the Cosmos Hub interacts with all the all the the zones, and then these assets that live on the zones can use the atomic swapping mechanism within the Cosmos Hub to interoperate. Well, you can say that way. You know, I mean, the devil's in the details. <laughs> what an atomic swap sure, is the different things to different chains. But you know, but the high level, of, of that is the way in which I think, in general, to have a, there is a role for a permissionless public blockchain because the permissionless allows you an immediate transfer to the main chain and backwards. And once you are in the in the, in the public chain, you allow the item, not who owns the item. Right uh, to know, and when I transfer the item uh, to the main chain, first I transfer to a, a temporary public key, so you don't even know which public key owns in the red chain the triangle, and I don't know which public key owns uh, in the blue chain the circle. You transfer to temporary key in your own chain first. This temporary key is own in the main algorithm thing. They swap there and they swap back. So I think that the public aspect. The permissionless aspect is very easy to, to bring it to the main chain. And the public aspect is to say, oh, everybody knows now that I don't know to whom it belongs, but the triangle now is in the red chain and the circle now is in the blue chain. So that I am prevented to give it to other, other people. So I think the thing, finding the right synergy between permission and permissionless blockchain is very crucial. But there again, which you know, chain you want to use? You want to use the permissionless chain as a backbone that has the best smart contracts, the best means to interact with each other, uh, atomic swaps on layer one and not as a smart contracts and so on and so forth. So what's next for Algorand and uh, where can people find you? You know, one of the things as you can, you know, hear from Silvio is uh, not only is sort of the like core protocol kind of something that we thought was important, but continual innovation uh, is something that, that you know, we're very focused on. You know, that led to Algorand version two, which was uh, released only a few months after mainnet launch. You know, there's continued innovation going on around co-chains and other areas. So I'd suggest everyone kind of stay tuned. You know, also kind of, you know, ensuring that, you know, there's a, a variety of, of layer two applications that are that enable developers continuing to kind of build on the portfolio of tools that, that we've already released. You know, I think those are the things we're hard at work at over here. And uh, in terms of finding us, you know, we'd encourage anybody, um, please come to our website, which is algorand.com. We have there's links to our, our social media presence there and, uh, you know, a lot of information on the project. Um, and for anybody who's uh, looking to build applications on top of Algorand, developer.algorand.org has a variety of developer materials uh, and information on how to get involved technically. But, um, you know, it's been really exciting, uh, you know, first uh, six, seven months uh, since launch. And, and we've been really excited about the response we've seen out in the market. Great. Well, Stephen, Silvio, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sebastian. It's been a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Thank you, Sebastian, uh, for having us. It's, uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, 
you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.